there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. You know my theme for these three days, a steadfast heart, a simpler life. And I am convinced that most of us earnestly and almost desperately desire a simpler life, but it does have to begin with a steadfast heart. And I want to begin by asking you three questions for you to ponder. Number one is what do you want in life? Second question, how will you get it? And number three, what will it cost you? What do you want in life? How will you get it? And what will it cost you? And I see that there are a good many gray heads here tonight besides my own. And I, for one, have to confess that I have been a very slow learner. And I hope that I will continue to learn every minute that the Lord has assigned for the rest of my life. And none of us knows whether we'll be here tomorrow morning, do we? But I do want holiness. I want to be like Jesus. I don't think that there's ever been anything that I wanted more than that. I trust there's never been anything that I've wanted as much as that. And it was when I was about 12 years old that I made up my mind that that was what I wanted. Well, of course, the great question is, how are you going to get it? It's interesting to me how many times I've asked young people this first question, what do you want more than anything else in the world? And I draw a blank. Now, they could come up with what they would like on their Big Mac or what they would do if I told them I was going to give them $75,000 for a car, which kind of car would they want. But when it comes to serious question as to what they want more than anything else, it's seldom that they have a ready answer. How will you get it and what will it cost you? Matthew 16, 24 to 27 is the basis of just about everything that I'm going to say these three days. You remember that Jesus had just told the disciples that he was going up to Jerusalem and he was going to have to suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed. And Peter, of course, was outraged, upset by this, and said to Jesus, probably exactly what you and I would have wanted to say, no, Lord, that must not happen to you. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you, says the NIV. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then Jesus said to his disciples, and these are the three verses to which I just referred, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, 
and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. You might find the answer to that first question, what do you want in life, in this passage. Jesus is not saying, you must follow me. He's saying, if you want to follow me, if you want to come after me, you must. And that's the first condition, is deny yourself. Another translation says, give up your right to yourself. Probably the most difficult thing that God ever asks any of us to do. It's the last thing in the world that the modern mind is, is encouraging us to do. We're certainly being told from all sides, we're being given a bombardment about self-esteem and self-love and self-image and self-actualization and self-realization and all the rest of it. And Jesus cuts right across that at the very root when he says, if you want to be my disciple, you must give up your right to yourself. That's the first condition. The most outrageous, humanly speaking, and the most essential. So the question, do you want to be his disciple? Do you want that more than anything else? How will you get it? Give up your right to yourself, and then take up the cross. We will not be in a position to take up the cross unless we have given up first our right to ourselves. You remember that Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he went to the cross, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But if it is not possible, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus could not save himself and save us. He was taunted as he hung on the cross by the mockers who said him, he, he saved others, himself he could not save. And it was a joke. It was a cry of derision. But it was true, wasn't it? He could not save himself and save you and me. It was one or the other. What will it cost you? Just what it cost him. Everything. So what do I mean by a steadfast heart? It means, of course, the word steadfast means firmly established, immovable, unchanging, unswerving, constant, unwavering, and not fickle. Do we dare characterize ourselves as people with that steadfast a heart? Firmly established, immovable, unchanging, unswerving, constant, unwavering, and not fickle. We're not likely to achieve that steadfastness if we can't answer the three questions. A steadfast eye, a single eye, Jesus calls it, for his glory, a steadfast spirit, unwavering, immovable, and a purpose which has been 
decided once and for all. And it was when I was 12 years old that I discovered the prayer written by a woman whose life had already greatly influenced my own. Her name was Betty Scott when I first met her. She was a young missionary on her way to China to marry a man named John Stamm. And she was among the many dozens of missionaries who came as guests to our home. That was one of the great blessings of being uh, the child of my parents. They were mission-minded and they were hospitable and we had dozens, perhaps hundreds of missionaries come through. And Betty Scott was one of them on her way to China. And then when I was eight years old, I learned that Betty Scott Stam and her husband John had been beheaded by Chinese communists. And far from from being dissuaded or distracted from my desire to follow the Lord, I was powerfully drawn by that testimony. And when I was 12, I found the prayer that Betty Scott Stam had written. And I copied that into my Bible. And these were the words, Lord, I give up all my plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will from my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me and use me. Fill me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt and work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. She could not possibly have known, of course, what that cost was going to be. The Bible says in Psalm 42, 6, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. Does this describe you and me? Are we like Mount Zion, unshakable? Well, we're all at different stages of our spiritual lives, aren't we? We're at different stages of our physical lives. I'm delighted to see young people, young women here. Uh, Not sure how many young men I've seen, but I haven't been around. But Scott is certainly one of them. I found out how old he is today. He's just a kid, you know. But... um, We are at different stages, and all of us are in process until that day when the Lord calls us home. And so I trust that we're not going to quit learning at any point. And Hebrews 10, 9 and 10 has another word for us here. Where did my marker get to? Speaking of the love of the Son for the Father. Jesus said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so I want to speak, if you want a title for tonight's talk, it would be Love's Great Compulsion. I've divided my 
two main themes in two each. There are two, two headings under each. I will be giving four talks. So tonight's talk is Love's Great Compulsion. And that love which took Jesus Christ to the cross was primarily his love for his father. His love for his father would stop at nothing. And he was able to say, although with tears and sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, not my will. It cost him dearly. But he was compelled by love for his father. So to give you three points under my heading, Love's Great Compulsion, number one, love compels. The Bible says love is very patient, very kind. And my husband and I had the opportunity to observe at very close range the patience and kindness of a pair of birds Last summer, we were gone for a few days. We came back. We had left the bathroom window slightly open, and it was one of those windows that opens with the hinges on the side. So it was open, and in the vortex was the beginnings of a bird nest between the window and the screen, and it was on the windowsill. So we could stand there six inches away from this beginning nest and watch what was going on. And it was quite fascinating to watch the building of that nest. It was kind of a mess when they started out. It was a couple of house finches. And then as they got down to the last phase, then they made a perfectly neat little round, beautifully, uh, warmly, and smoothly lined nest in the middle with all these sticks and straws and whatnot on the outside. And then we watched, and the next day there was one egg in there, and the following day there was another egg, and then in five days there were five eggs. And so we had the privilege of watching those babies born, hatched. And on one occasion I watched the father feed those five birds. In one trip he fed 55 mouthfuls. And the more I pondered that, I'm, the more I thought that's absolutely impossible. There's no way that that bird could have had 55 mouthfuls. Each bird got 11 mouthfuls, one at a time. And he went around in different orders, not missing any of them, but never the same order. He gave each of them 11, 11 mouthfuls, and it was 55 altogether. And when I told Lars about this, right away he said that bird had to be regurgitating, which of course he must have been doing. I don't know anything about how they do it, but I was assuming that birds bring one worm at a time and have to make 55 trips or something, but in this case it wasn't like that. But it was a wonderful thing to see the patience and this God-given kindness to these tiny little helpless, hideously ugly, <laughs> naked, little red, slimy-looking birds with not a... <laughs> not a smidgen of a hope of a feather. <laughs> and then I thought of the, the compulsion that Amy Carmichael felt when God opened her eyes to a terrible traffic that was going on in India. She had gone to India as an Irish missionary and had a very successful six years of traveling evangelism. The Lord had given her real gifts in evangelism, and she traveled with a group of very dedicated young Christian women. 
and they traveled by the world's most uncomfortable method of transportation, a bullock cart that has wheels that seem as though they're square. My husband and I, when we were over there, took about a 10-minute ride in a bullock cart, and it was about nine minutes more than we really wanted. <laughs> and they stayed in tents in this very, very hot, dry, southern part of India. But during those six years, Amy Carmichael discovered that there was an underground traffic of girl babies that were being dedicated to Hindu temples for the purpose of prostitution for a lifetime. And once those babies were committed to the temple, they were never again released. And she was horrified and began to pray that God would enable, enable her to save some of those babies, and God answered that prayer. Then, after a few more years, she discovered that there was a very similar traffic of little boy babies who were being sold into the Hindu temples for the purposes of prostitution, of uh, homosexual prostitution. And these boys, likewise, were dedicated at very early ages and were virtual prisoners until they were no longer of any use. When they got too old, then they were, in one way or another, killed. But God gave her the privilege of becoming the mother of literally hundreds of children. I guess over the years she must have been the mother to more than a thousand children and established a most remarkable work called the Donover Fellowship, which is still going on. But what was it that made her do that? It was the compulsion of love, primarily for Jesus Christ, and then for these helpless little children. But the thing that stood out particularly in my mind as I studied her life was here was a woman with great gifts, tremendous gifts in music, in poetry, in writing, her writing is exquisite. There's not one sentence of any scrap of any personal letter that I read of hers, and I read a whole suitcase full of her personal letters and tiny little notes that she'd written to people. There's not one sentence that is not flawless, absolutely flawless. So she had many gifts, and the gift of an evangelist as well. But she was tied up, as it were, for the rest of her life with mother work. And mother work, as she said, involved, in her case, the cutting, for example, of thousands of tiny little toenails and tiny little fingernails and the making of formulas, and she had no wisdom in anything like that. She had to ask God for every step of the way. Diapers, formulas, toenails. Nothing very spiritual about those things, are they? It was love, the love of Christ, that compelled her. You know that beautiful hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. The last stanza, where the whole realm of nature mine, that were present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The whole works, everything. Give up your right to yourself. That's the first condition of discipleship. I went to a boarding school in Florida named Hampton DeBose Academy. The teachers were volunteers. The same teachers, now you're not going to believe this, the same teachers who taught me are still teaching in that school. I went there in 1941 at the age of 14. Don't do the arithmetic right now. 
And four of those teachers are still teaching, and they are still volunteers. And the last time I saw one of those teachers, one of them was a very close friend of mine because I was also a teacher in that school for about six months. And she was my roommate during that time, so I became a very great, even a greater admirer of her than I had been when I was her student. But when I saw her a few years ago, I said, I just want you to give me, just in one sentence, why did you do this? Why this volunteer work for your whole life? And of course, she gave me the very simple but very obvious answer. It was for the Lord. Love compelled her, and she was to me an icon of Christ-like love. She still is. She's coming to visit us in August. Nothing about any of those teachers that was rude or self-seeking, not one of them that I know of was easily angered. Love's great compulsion is self-giving, self-abandonment, self-dereliction, if you will, an absolute making of myself a zero for the love of God in order that God may love me, love others through me. And when a mother refuses to allow her 14-year-old daughter to date or her six-year-old son to spend a whole afternoon on Nintendo or spanks her two-year-old, she has a hard time convincing that child that her reason is because I love you. The child doesn't believe that, do they? And I can remember my mother saying, this hurts me worse than it hurts you, and we didn't believe a word of that until we became parents. And then, of course, you know. That's the absolute truth. No mother with any sense at all is going to allow a 14-year-old daughter to date. No six-year-old child should be allowed to spend a whole afternoon on Nintendo, in my opinion. I'm just sort of casting about for contemporary examples here. And the Bible clearly says that a father who does not discipline his son hates him. The world is telling us the opposite. If you discipline your son in any physical way, then of course you, uh, you, you, you hate him. But the Bible says the opposite. You must discipline him. I do this because I love you. And my friend Barb Tompkins of Tucson, Arizona, who is a very wise mother with four children, I think it is, she raised her children on the principle, it is your choice. If you do this, you will get a spanking. And the child chooses to do it, and so she takes the child onto her lap and she says, well, Katie, dear, I see that you have chosen a spanking. <laughs> Whereupon she administers that spanking without hesitation and reminds her once again that the reason I did this is because I love you. The second thing about love's great compulsion is that it powerfully simplifies life. Love powerfully simplifies everything. We will be talking more about a simpler life in the last two talks, but it's necessary to include this one under love's great compulsion. Psalm 27, 4, the psalmist says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. In Luke 10.42, we have the lovely story of Jesus visiting that lovely home in Bethany where Martha is cumbered with many cares in the kitchen 
And Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says to Martha, who is very upset because her sister doesn't seem to be bearing her share of the burden, one thing is needful. And Mary has chosen that good part. And the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3.13, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. This one thing I do. One thing is needful. Love is going to simplify your life. Forgetting those things which are behind. We hear a lot nowadays about dredging up those things which are behind, raking through them. The Apostle Paul took the view that the cross has already dealt with all of that and it doesn't need to be raked over again. And he says in 1 Corinthians 13, one of the characteristics of love is that it keeps no record of wrongs. And if you want to really simplify your life, just scrap all the records of wrongs that you've been keeping in your head or on paper or in the letters or wherever. Forget about it. It eliminates all other options because we are commanded to love. It's going to simplify your life. Make up your mind what is the one thing you want in life. Discard the records of wrongs. Eliminate all options which are contrary to love. When we're in a quandary about what to do about some decision or somebody, a great simplifier is to remember that love is going to show you what to do, especially if it's a matter with somebody who's difficult to get along with or somebody with whom you've had an argument or a falling out. And you don't know what to do. Love will show you what to do. And that most beautiful prayer of commitment, Mary's response when the angel told her about the assignment that God had given to this simple, humble Jewish girl in this out-of-the-way place called Nazareth, her immediate response was, Be it unto me according to thy word. Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it happen as you say. I love that. Instant unhesitating, total response of surrender. Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. And scholars tell, her, tell us that she was probably, at the most, 14 or 15 years old, a child, because she was at that time betrothed, which was the custom in those days, and she was betrothed, as we know, to Joseph. But instantly, instead of any arguments about what about my plans, what am I going to tell the people in the town about this pregnancy, how am I ever going to convince my parents, and what on earth will I tell Joseph? Isn't it interesting that Mary was not asked to lead any special kind of life, to go into seclusion, or to cultivate any special privileges. She went ahead with her marriage. She was to live the life of a poor village carpenter's wife in a humble home in a nowheresville called Nazareth and she was to do just what she planned to do. God didn't give her any other assignment but that she was to become the mother of his son. 
She was going to carry out the plans that she'd made when she never had any idea that anything extraordinary was going to happen. But I've thought about a lot about the fact that God had this secret with her which he guarded at the cost of this little bride's seeming dishonor. You remember that Joseph did think that she had been unfaithful because it says that he had made up his mind to put her away privately. He was a just man. He did not want to put her in public disgrace. But as a godly Jew, he could not marry her if she had been unfaithful. And Mary had, had not made any explanations to Joseph. It was too great a mystery. She was able to keep her mouth shut. And God then sent his angel, and he took care of that. The angel went to assure Joseph that she had not been unfaithful. But God did allow Joseph to misjudge her for a while. That must have been very painful. But love powerfully simplifies. We worry, we stew, we figure, we calculate about so many things. And the Lord is just saying, love me, and I'll show you what to do. Ask me. I'll help you. Mary was asked for the gift of her body, her humanity, in order that Jesus Christ could be born in the way that every other baby is born, as a human being, in sorrow and in suffering. And then, of course, her daily life was offered in love to that baby, as is the life of every mother when she gives birth to a child. God did not ask her to separate from Joseph. She was to continue to live her life as a wife in simple human tenderness and to love him as a wife is to love her husband. And we women have probably the advantage of understanding a tiny bit more than men, not that we ever can comprehend the mystery of Christ in a human womb, but we are made to be receivers and bearers and nurturers. And Paul's word, Christ in me, the hope of glory, is a word for all of us, men and women alike. But as a woman, it means a tremendous lot to me to realize that I am a Christ-bearer Every one of us is meant to be a Christ-bearer to the world, to the light of the world. And as I learn to love him, and as I lay down my life for him, and I love others through him, and he loves others through me, life becomes much less complicated. That staggering statement, Christ in me, the hope of glory from Colossians, it is incomprehensible, isn't it? It's a great mystery. I get many letters from radio listeners asking me all kinds of questions about theology and everything else under the sun. They expect me to be able to answer them all, and of course I can't. And many of the questions are, how can God do this? Or how am I supposed to do that? Or how could God expe expect me to do so-and-so and so-and-so? And very often, all, the only thing that I can answer to them, I don't know what God wants them to do in this or that situation. But I simply try to point out to them that love will show you what to do. 
if you ask yourself, is, will this be the road of love? Or is it something else? All the other options can go. God will show you. And he is not going to complicate your life. He is going to greatly simplify it. And those two birds that fed those five babies, they only had one thing in their minds. As far as I could tell, they didn't do anything else. They were, it was one or the other of them all the time on that nest, in and out and in and out. And interestingly enough, just before we left home on this trip, we had left that same window open for about the same distance. And just before we left the house, Lars said he went into the bathroom and one of those birds was casing the joint again. <laughs> now, we're not going to be that hospitable this year because last year we found out that the whole house got full of bird lice. So don't let that happen. That's neither here nor there. <laughs> the third thing under this heading, love's great compulsion, love surrenders. And I meant to point out under point two, love powerfully simplifies, that this fits in with those three conditions of discipleship. When you give up your right to yourself, which goes along with point one, then you take up the cross. Now what does that mean? That seems to puzzle so many people. Imagining perhaps that the cross is something like what Betty Scott Stamm did. She got her head chopped off. And we read the stories of missionary heroes and we think, oh, that's marvelous, isn't that wonderful? And God's never asked me to do anything like that. And he probably never will. And we wish perhaps way deep down in our hearts that God might, if he wanted us to do something really great for him, that he would give us something heroic. And God is not very likely to give very many of us anything very heroic to do, is he? He asks us to take up our cross daily. And what is that? I love the definition given by an old writer. The taking up of the cross is the, the humble daily acceptance of small duties which are distasteful to us. The taking up of the cross is the continual daily acceptance of small duties which are distasteful to us. Give up your right to yourself, take up the cross, and lastly, follow. Love surrenders. When Jesus called the disciples away from their fishing nets, it was an instant, yes, Lord. All their livelihood left behind. One wonders, one can't help wondering, what was it about this figure of Jesus that so overwhelmed them and demanded instant obedience. It was the compulsion of love. But why? When you fall in love, I'm speaking now to women, we women, when we fall in love, I think it is the, it is the desire of every real woman, every true woman, every feminine woman, to submit to her husband. There's nothing in the world that I wanted more than anything else than to submit to Jim Elliot. 
I fell in love with him when I was a senior in college, and I hoped and prayed and desperately prayed that someday the Lord might give him to me as a husband, but it was many years before he did. But that's what I wanted. I, Although I am anything but submissive by nature, there's not a submissive atom in me by nature. Don't imagine that there is. Um, falling in love, you just lose all your bearings. And everything that you thought you had to have goes because of your one single desire for this person, this man. And of course I would submit to him, and of course I would live to please him, and of course I would agree with everything he said, and of course I would go anywhere he wanted me to go. But you get over that, don't you? <laughs> and you're looking at a woman who has had to learn to submit not just to one man or two men, but three very different men. But Mary offered herself instantly. Her attitude was, yes, Lord. Love is a total surrender. The great compulsion of love. She loved God enough to ask no questions, except the one very simple question that she asked the angel, but how can this be? I have never known a man. It was not an objection. It was a simple question of fact. Yes, Mary said yes, with no ifs, ands, or buts, no demand for an explanation as to what this was going to cost her. She must have had a few instant thoughts go through her head. What, what will Joseph say? What will the people do? Perhaps she thought right away that a Jewish girl who fornicates is going to be stoned to death. And if that's what the, with what the townspeople thought she had done, then that would probably happen. As someone has said, emptiness is a virginal quality. And Mary was empty of her own will. And as a virgin, she was totally at God's orders. Her body was all his. But that emptiness is not a void. It's not meaningless. It's not an unhappy condition. It is the emptiness, as someone has said, of a, of a nest. The nest is prepared, but the nest is still empty until the egg is there. God had prepared this woman's body, but it was still empty. It was a cup, and she became a chalice. And that's another fact that we women, I think, can more deeply appreciate than men. We are created to be chalices. And whether God ever gives us children in the biological sense or not, he wants us to be mothers in the spiritual sense, spiritual mothers, prepared to receive whatever God might give. And this is the application for the men. We are all female by, or we are all, C.S. Lewis says, feminine by comparison with God. I, I like C.S. Lewis's statement, God is so masculine, all creation is feminine by comparison. And of course the Bible uses the metaphor, Christ is the head of the church, and the Christians who are his body are his bride. So the bride of Christ comprises both men and women. So love for Christ, be we man or woman, surrenders. Whatever God wants to give me, 
I will receive. And in the receiving, I receive God. A steadfast heart. I have made up my mind, I will follow you. I will take up my cross. I will give up my right to myself. And I'm not going to change my mind. Steadfastness, established, immovable, unchanging, unswerving, unwavering, not fickle. Is there anything in heaven or earth or hell that can separate us from the love of God? No. Romans 8 puts that very beautifully, very unarguably, doesn't it? Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. No disaster, no untoward happening, nothing whatsoever can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus the Lord. Someone has written, strangely enough, those who complain the loudest of the emptiness of their lives are usually people whose lives are overcrowded, filled with trivial details, plans, desires, ambitions, unsatisfied cravings for passing pleasures, doubts, anxieties, and fears, overlaid with exhausting pleasures, an attempt always futile to forget how pointless their lives are. Is your life pointless, or does it have a steady, clear, fixed direction? In Isaiah uh, 50, verse 7, we have a prophetic word about Jesus. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. And when Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he had set his face like a flint. And when Peter tried to dissuade him, tried to persuade him to protect himself, he swung around with those, those very fierce words. Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking as God does. You're thinking as man does. Because his face was set like a flint. It was a steadfast heart. Those strange people whose lives are so empty who crowd themselves with trivial details, plans, desires, etc., always futile. They dread space. They dread silence. They are afraid to be alone with their hearts. It would be well for us to ponder how cluttered are our lives. Have we really, finally, clearly defined what we want more than anything else. How are we going to get that? What does it take? And how much is it going to cost? You remember when Jesus talked to the rich young man, he said, you have to sell everything you have. And the Bible tells us only this, he turned away sorrowful because he had great possessions. What a complicated life. A steadfast heart will bring a much simpler heart. God bless you.
I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.